Um, I'm so glad that as a church, we're walking through what does work mean and how do we approach it? Because the reality is, as I'm sure you've already reflected on, we will spend more time doing our work than almost any other thing that we do. Um, we will spend more time at our workplaces than we will with our families awake for the majority of our lives. Uh, we'll spend far more time at work doing our work than in a Bible study, uh, listening to a sermon or singing a worship song. We're going to spend a lot of our time working. And so we've been looking at different ways to think about work through Scripture as well as wa walking through the text of Daniel. And so um, Dig said, you know, could you look at um, what some people call the two kingdoms view of work? And I said, sure, because I figure I should receive the passage that I'm given. It's always good to... Um, wrestle with the text in a different way. And I admit, I was kind of stumped. Um, I'm more of a dyed-in-the-wool, let's transform culture, let's you know, influence the culture through the work that we're doing. And I was stumped and had to clean the house a little bit, so I was sitting underneath our dining room table. And I wasn't hiding. I have done that in the past. But um, I, had, um, I finally had bought um, a spray can of Pledge and was cleaning um, the posts that are underneath our dining room table, which... I'm just going to confess, I'm not sure we've ever polished or cleaned them. We've done some light dusting, but never really went at it. I'm sure others of you are just horrified that this is true, but I was rubbing Pledge into the leg of the table. I think I removed a few years' worth of grime, maybe a decade of grime, and I was really, what does it mean, and how do we understand this two kingdoms view of work, and how does it actually shape and influence us in positive ways to glorify God? And as I was rubbing down the table, and then as I was later washing the dishes and doing the laundry, um, I began to think about this text some more. So let's start with what's, what's classically this two kingdoms view, right, as one of many ways that we think about how do we engage culture. Um, you looked at um, what does it mean to be countercultural? Uh, two weeks ago, uh, last week we looked a little bit more at how do you transform culture and engage it. This week we're looking at this two kingdoms view. And one way to describe it would be this, that God obviously is sovereign over all creation. He's in charge. Let there be no question about that. But he engages the everyday, ordinary, common kingdom that we live in by common grace. Um, by the ordinary goodness of the world, right? So he rules our country through a government that he establishes that's not particularly Christian, has never been particularly Christian. It's just a government like every other country has a government. He does these things. Um, average families are not led by Christians or particularly influenced by Christian ideals, and yet children are raised by this common grace that we enjoy. Um, the average person goes about their work not thinking about how will I transform culture, but how will I get my job done? My to-do list far exceeds the hours I have for it, right? That this everyday ordinary kingdom is how God administers the world doing everyday ordinary things. And there's this kind of redemptive spiritual kingdom that's also true that really only affects those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus, and it's through his saving grace through Jesus and his special revelation in Scripture that we come to know that kingdom and participate in it. And so the moments that we have here together as a church 
are special expressions of that special spiritual kingdom, right? And we do our everyday work out there, and then when we come together for worship and in prayer and in scripture, we assert that God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that exists and coexists with this other kingdom that's there. God rules over both, but we have two different ways of engaging the world. The everyday one that everybody else does and the way that only those who have been changed by the Holy Spirit and are followers of Jesus can engage. And so um, you see this acknowledgement of two kingdoms, I think, in this passage as it was so beautifully read to us. Um, in Daniel 4, 1 through 3, you get the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and the Most High God's kingdom, right? So it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the people, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, which in his mind probably is in my vast empire, which spans the world as I know it. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And part of the contrast that you get, right, is um, there's an implicit contrast between my kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, that I rule, and this larger kingdom that God rules. You see that contrast again, not just in Daniel 4, 1 through 3, but you see it in what provokes judgment against Nebuchadnezzar in verses 29 through 30. If you look at verses 29 through 30, he has this dream, Daniel interprets it for him, and all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. And you see it again, this contrast between God's special spiritual reign and Nebuchadnezzar's more temporary kingdom in verse 34, when Nebuchadnezzar says, his kingdom is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation till generation. And part of what you have, right, is this contrast between two kingdoms, one which passes away and one which is eternal, um, you get one which is human and one which is very divine um, and special. And even the judgment that Nebuchadnezzar experiences seems to underlie this difference. God's eternal, all-powerful, and holy, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, to remind you of who you actually are and the kind of kingdom you are, I'm going to take away your higher faculties. I'm going to reduce you from being a glorious king to basically somebody who thinks that they're a cow, right? You're out there eating the grass of the field, living outdoors. I'm going to remind you of just how animal you really are, Nebuchadnezzar, because you will pass just like your kingdom will pass, and you're just like an ordinary, everyday mammal. I am the Lord God. And what's fascinating, I think, if you look at this passage as... Um, a demonstration of this two kingdoms idea is that the goal of the correction, the goal of God's correction of Nebuchadnezzar is be less arrogant, Nebuchadnezzar, right? It says Nebuchadnezzar is filled with the sense of, I've made an amazing city for myself. I've made this incredible palace. I am mighty and glorious. And God goes, okay, we, we've had enough now. You're a mammal, 
you eat, you breathe, right? Um, uh, let me remind you of how mammal you are. What's interesting is the critique by God, the judgment by God, at least at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, is not you are ruling unjustly. You have not demonstrated mercy or justice to those who are oppressed. It has nothing to do with, are you using your wealth in appropriate ways, Nebuchadnezzar? It has nothing to do with, did you use your kingdom to declare my glory among the nations? It's all about Nebuchadnezzar's character as he goes about this ordinary task of ruling. And so part of the two kingdoms approach right, would suggest Nebuchadnezzar actually advances God's purposes in the ordinary, common areas of our life by just being an ordinary good king. That would be enough. That would be good. That would be sufficient. And it's only because of Nebuchadnezzar's overwhelming pride that God finally steps in. And God's own glorious kingdom doesn't get a lot of attention in this passage. There's nothing about his moral law. There's nothing about his perfections. There's nothing about advancing the cause of redemption. He's just executing judgment so that Nebuchadnezzar is a little less arrogant. And this two kingdoms view may explain why Daniel seems to work so comfortably for Nebuchadnezzar. Because if you actually know about Babylonian history, while they had a good law code, they were not particularly a generous, kind-hearted, justice-oriented, mercy-driven people. Right, um, Like almost every kingdom of the time, um, it was filled with terrible things that were done. And how does Daniel participate? Well, what is Daniel's role? Daniel seems to be sort of an IT consultant um, in that culture, if you want to think of it that way. right? The king has a technical problem. He's not sure how to process information, and he calls in. He calls them magicians, diviners, and magicians, but honestly, if you ever have to work with a computer intellectual property, it might as well, in my mind, be magic. Um, I prefer to think little fairies live in my computer. It makes just as much sense for me to believe that fairies live in the computer as that, like, silica chips with a little metal and electric, like, a, really? And doesn't, don't most of our computer malfunctions make more sense if you believe there's just a malign fairy inside our computer? Because, like, how do these little chips do their thing? So, as far as I'm concerned, chips are things we should eat, <laughs> and computers are run by magic. And so he calls in his um, diviners and magicians, people like Nate Silver, who look at um, random collections of numbers and predict the future. And he says to Daniel, Daniel, you're the best of who I have. What do you say? Right? How is Daniel able to work in the system? In part, because he's participating in the common grace of government that all people are participating in. Um, he does not step out of the system and say, I can't work for a pagan king. Um, as far as we know, as you read through the book of Daniel, rarely is he advocating for a more just system um, or uh, a more merciful system. Um, he and his friends do protest uh, religious persecution, but that's about it, right? How is he able to do it? It may be, if you want to look at this passage as an example, I do my day job faithfully and I worship God appropriately and only until you interfere with my worship of God will I challenge who you are. Right, so that's, that's the two kingdoms model. How does that apply in our daily lives? Well, I've sort of sketched that out, right? If God rules creation and this common everyday experience of his kingdom by common grace, one good thing about this model, let it be said, right, is that our daily work matters to God, and he expects us to do it well. 
Um, He created us with work in mind, right? Before sin enters the world, before the fall affects what we do in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, he says, male and female, I created them, and now go, take this garden and the wilderness around it and make things. Feed yourselves. Do the ordinary work of taming this wilderness and turning it into something glorious, which will allow you and your families to flourish and be fed and will demonstrate the fact that I reign and rule. Right? Genesis 1, 27 to 28 um, is not a redemptive purpose thing. It's a something that everybody who has been made in God's image, which is every human being, has been called to fulfill and to function and to do. Um, It's a little bit of, I think, what underlies most of the teaching about work in the book of Proverbs, right? In the book of Proverbs, it's not work to the glory of God. It's get up, you sluggard. Look at the ant. The ant is working. Why are you not working, right? Do your work with diligence. In um, Proverbs 31, the woman is not described as look at the image of the church faithfully laboring, right, for the kingdom. It's she's a great worker, She does what she needs to do to ensure that her family is fed and her um, family is clothed and that uh, her her larger family flourishes. One of the benefits of this two kingdoms model is that if we're honest, often there's no particularly Christian way to do our ordinary tasks, right? I don't know how to cook Christianly. (laughs) There is nothing distinctive about the spices, the technique that I use as a Christian cooking. There may be differences in my motivation. You could be like Brother Lawrence and spiritualize it all. As I stir the pot, I remember the Holy Spirit stirring over the waters, right? As I wash, I remember being washed by the blood of the Lamb. You can do that, but for most of us, um, cleaning is just cleaning. If we're Christians, hopefully we do it with a gracious attitude and a servant's heart, but in the end, you still wipe, right? You still scrub, um, and it reminds me of um, a journal entry I read once of a woman who lived on the prairies of the United States in the 1870s talking about the quilts that she would make. And she said, I make them warm to keep my family from freezing, but I make them beautiful to keep my heart from breaking. Right? That there's something just profoundly human, ordinary, and glorious about our everyday tasks. And so for many of us, we freely work for governments and corporations, nonprofit agencies and partnerships, believing that God uses them to order the affairs of our world. And we participate freely with those who aren't yet believers to do that because um, that's part of what God and how God creates things. And then simultaneously, God ordains us into a community like this, spread out through time and space to declare his praise and to grow ourselves in the other parts of the kingdom um, where people need to worship. Now, I want to point out, if there's a downside to the two kingdoms model, it's, um, it's too easy for us to just punch a clock, get our paycheck, and not actually think about why, what we're working toward and what we're doing and how we do it. Um, that, in fact, one of the calls of the Christian faith might be to ask, is this a just purpose that my business is pursuing, or should I not do this? Is this area of research something that should be pursued, or should we stop out of humility and concern about its implications? Is the way my company is going about this process, or my government agency, or my school district doing something in ways which honor and help people, or is it actually destructive to the people around us? 
Does it advance God's glory or not? Is it shaping my soul in ways which actually further and grow my character and Christ-likeness, or am I actually being damaged day by day by participating in this, whether I see it or not? Right? The tension for those of us who take the two kingdoms model is that it's just very easy to bifurcate our lives into what's secular and what's sacred. And then we kind of just can justify almost anything um, that we do in the secular sphere of life because we're worshiping happily on the spiritual side of our life. Uh, one of the critiques of this model was really um, this model without some leavening um, could easily lead you to, back, to be back at the church in Nazi Germany where, well, as long as we worship well on Sunday, it doesn't matter what we do the other six days of the week. Um, I want to suggest that America has a tendency to live in two kingdoms work, right? We work hard, we earn well, and then we believe over here. And that's why we often hear people say, keep your faith out of our daily lives, right? Privatize your faith into your own nice faith community. Believe whatever you want in this log cabin. Just don't interfere with the ways that we govern, the ways that we teach, the ways that we work. Um, And I think... Um, so many of the tensions that we experience politically arise with these differing views of how we engage culture and how we engage work. Um, In fact, I was reflecting today, uh, I was listening to the news last night and this morning, um, the entire uh, should sports figures take a knee during the um, playing of the national anthem um, and uh, at sports events, if you just think about... um, the work and culture tension, right? Recognizing there's a, a, a larger political conversation, a long conversation about what does justice and protest look like. You'll note those who take the knee, particularly those who are Christians in sports, would probably say they think of, at this point, work as either countercultural opportunity to protest or as a transformative way to provoke a conversation. I think those who would say, you're a sports player, I shouldn't care what you think about um, political or justice issues, would say, you're a sports player. Do your common act thing here. If you have a protest, do it at church on Sunday when you're there, right? So that part of the collision that we're experiencing and the tension is different models of how we approach work, shaping the ways that we have that conversation depending on what you think your work is designed to do. Um, And so that you can see when actually which model you take in which um, context you take it profoundly affect the ways that you begin to engage the world as well as begin to affect the ways that you begin to engage one another and the world around you in terms of the work that you do. Um, and it was fascinating as I was listening to, the, um, uh, listening to some of the commentary on that this morning, um, a number of folk pointed out the deep Christian faith of some of the players who actually have been saying that they were not going to stand. They were going to take a knee as a respectful gesture, but as a gesture of protest at the same time. And so for them, they're very much engaging it. What model of work do you have? And how does it play out for you individually and affect the culture that you live in and the conversations that we provoke? So I was polishing furniture and washing dishes last night. Nothing particularly Christian about those activities. Um, Everybody would want to do that well if they were doing it. And everybody would do it without faith influencing what they did, though perhaps maybe, as I said, with a little bit more joy, peace, patience, and kindness. Um, And so the challenge for us as a congregation, right, is to better understand these models, to understand their implications and how they're played out. Are there places where the model is helpful? And are there places where the model is weak? And then in what context or on what issues do we begin to think through how we think about our job 
in each of those things. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach this because this is not the model I normally work with or think through. It's not the model I would normally teach, but it gave me an appreciation for the God-given dignity of the ordinary tasks that we're called to as human beings. It made me think a lot about the terrible cost that people pay for being unemployed or underemployed for long periods of time because it's just work is a good thing that God gave us. And then thinking hard about how do I think about how the ways I approach work shape the culture I'm in. Let me invite Dick up. <laughs>